My scripture reading this morning, I'm going to Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, and reading from the 18th verse down to the end of that first chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I trust you have a copy of the scriptures. You can follow along with me as we read Matthew's account of the coming of that one who would save us from a holy God. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. May the Lord be pleased to bless to us this portion of his word this morning. We come to pray together. And I'm employing as my prayer this morning a lovely prayer from one of the Puritans. So join with me as we lift up our hearts to God in prayer. Let us pray together. The prayer is simply entitled, The Gift of Gifts. O source of all good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created, my Redeemer, surety, substitute, his self-emptying incomprehensible, his infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. Here is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above, was born like me that I might become like him. 
here in his love. When I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Here in his power, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Here in his wisdom, when I was undone, with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost, as man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. O oh God, take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my mind. Let me hear good tidings of great joy, and hearing, believe, rejoice, praise, adore. My conscience bathed in an ocean of repose, my eyes uplifted to a reconciled father. Place me with ox, ass, camel, goat, to look with them upon my Redeemer's face, and in him account myself delivered from sin. Let me with Simeon clasp the newborn child to my heart. Embrace him with undying faith, exalting that he is mine, and I am his. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give me no more. Hear these our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christmas season is, of course, a season for singing. We sing about the shepherds, while shepherds watch their flocks by night. And we sing about the angels. Hark! The herald angels sing. And we sing about the wise men. We three kings of Orient are. We sing about Bethlehem. O oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And of course we sing about Mary. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child. But when did we last sing about Joseph, what carol is there that we employ that speak of him? No, Joseph stands silently in the shadows. In many senses, he's the forgotten figure at Christmas time. 
And yet Matthew introduces his gospel and his record of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ by focusing upon this man, this, this young man, Joseph. And that fact is significant. For Joseph lineage puts him in the spotlight of the divine plan for humanity. A lineage that takes us back to King David, that takes us back to that wonderful little book of Ruth. So what kind of a man was Joseph? What can we learn from him this morning? Well, the first thing I would put to you this morning is when you look at this man, as it's recorded in Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19, you see that he was a, a gentle-hearted man. A gentle-hearted man. Now, to understand these texts, we have to give some thought to the element of culture. You see, in, in our culture at least up until recent times. When a young couple would want to get married, they would first of all be engaged. And then sometime later, there would be the marriage service at which they would become husband and wife. And then and only then would they come and live together. But in the days of Joseph, Within that culture, the procedure was a wee bit different. There was, of course, the engagement, often arranged by parents or by a matchmaker. And then there was the betrothal, which was very much the legal aspect of the forthcoming marriage. It was at the betrothal that promises were made and vows were given. And by virtue of the betrothal, the bridegroom and the bride were regarded legally as husband and wife. But the marriage was not consummated. They lived apart for at least another 12 months. The betrothal, in a sense reflects our marriage service. But then later, as I indicated, about 12 months after the betrothal, the marriage was signified by the bringing home of the bride by her husband to his house, where there would be great festivities. But the important aspect being that no further vows or promises were made at that married time. The couple were regarded because of the betrothal of being husband and wife. And it's that interval between betrothal and the marriage that Matthew now places Joseph and Mary. The 18th verse, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, it had not been consummated. 
This was the culture. But it's within that culture personally that Joseph now experiences a calamity. A calamity. Mary was found to be with child. Now Matthew helps his readers by adding the words from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph is not advised of this until the appearance of the angel that's recorded in verse 20. So Joseph, who may have been in his late teens or early 20s, had been living with his relatives or his parents when he discovered this news that Mary was pregnant. So what course of action is open to Joseph? Well, there were two options that were before him. Number one, he could charge Mary with adultery and make her a public example. Or secondly, without charging her with any crime, he could give her a letter of divorcement. This is his calamity. What action is he going to take? Well, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But then we are introduced to this man's compassion. Compassion. The course chosen was one marked by gentleness, mercy, consideration, and privacy. Joseph was determined to do all within his power to guard the name and the reputation of Mary, to preserve some of her dignity, to ensure that she would not suffer or face an awful public humiliation. Joseph, a young man, but a young man beyond his years as far as compassion and his love was concerned. He was a gentle hearted man, but man nonetheless. For the second thing I would put to you about Joseph was this. He was a grief-stricken man. A grief-stricken man. For you think of his condition. You see, we, we, we know the story, don't we? We've read the chapter many times or have heard it read many times. We read through verses 18 and 19. But can I say to you, don't be in too much of a rush to get through the words. Don't become too clinical. 
Don't become too used to the story. For in being so familiar with the events and outcome, we may miss some of the awful reality that is here behind the words. The pain, the gut-wrenching awfulness of this gentle young man's situation. Can't you imagine him with your mind's eye, a young man, a just man, a righteous man, religiously moral, upright, and he's lying in his bed that evening, pondering the news that he has received, that his loved one, Mary, has just come back from being with Elizabeth, and he looks at her, and she cannot hide the fact that she's bearing a child, and it's not his. It's not his. The awful sense of loss, the bitter disappointment, his heart torn over what he thought was the betrayal on the part of his beloved. His, his overwhelming sense of shame that somehow he had not satisfied her. That he was not enough for her. She had had to turn to another. Here was a man whose dreams were dashed, whose heart was broken, whose trust had been trashed. A man who could identify with the songwriter who wrote, My pain comes and goes. It comes in the morning and goes all night long. Joseph. A young man whose world has just crumbled around him and his future lying in tatters before him. And I wonder whether we have known anything like that. Oh, maybe not identical with Joseph's situation, but certainly something of grief, something of tears, because of some hurt, the loss of someone, broken promises, hopes dashed, trust abused, the inability to do what we once did, and the inability to pursue the dreams that we'd always entertained. My friends, this morning, grief wears various garments and comes to us in a multitude of ways and often at unexpected times, even at Christmas. Because for many, Christmas is a time of great joy. Others, 
Christmas's grief. The chair beside you at the table is empty. You are alone in that double bed where a loved one joined you for years. Here is Joseph, wrecked, the verge of ruin. But in verse 20, we read of his constellation. For before Joseph could act, a messenger of God is sent to him, because the Lord God knew this son of David. He knew his location, he knew his condition, and he knew his emotion. And thus the messenger brought a word of explanation, indicating that though Joseph was distraught and facing a terrible predicament, the Lord knew, and the Lord was in control, and the Lord was working out his purposes, that he was keeping his promises and fulfilling his, promises, his prophecies that had been given years before. And so Matthew takes us and writes in verse 22, he, he puts into the story, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The fact of the matter being that Joseph's grief would ultimately, by God's grace, be for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And my friends, as you have probably experienced yourself, situations come to us and they're hard for us to understand. That at times things are tough. And tears do stain our pillowcases. And sadness does fill our hearts. And we wonder, and you may be sitting here this morning wondering, how are you going to get through this Christmas? Let me say this. God's ways are mysterious at times and easily misunderstood by us. But be assured of this, God's ways with us are always moral and always merciful. As William Cooper put it, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. And we may ask why, and you can ask why, Job asked why. But the answer to the why question is the who. Who is behind it all? Who is directing it all? Who sent these providences? That makes all the difference. The true faith sees through tear-filled eyes and declares it is the Lord. For that's where Joseph's consolation come from. The Lord came to him and said to him, Fear not. Fear not. I am Lord. I have my purpose, my plan, 
my promises, my prophecies, I am still on the throne. Joseph, what kind of a man? Well, let me add this. My third point, that Joseph was a God-fearing man. A God-fearing man. And you see this in verses 24 and 25. You see it in his devotion to God. Because what do we read? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Under the most difficult of circumstances, Joseph demonstrates implicit obedience to God. And on at least four occasions, Matthew records that obedience. Here in verse 24, when you go into chapter 2, when God tells him to take his little family and go to Egypt, and then when God tells him to return to Israel, and then when God tells him to go to Galilee, to the town of Nazareth, and then there are at least two other further indications of Joseph's devotion to God. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 41, we read, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And then in chapter 4 of Luke and verse 16, we read, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And customs are usually developed in childhood. This had been the pattern of his parents. His devotion to God and his submission to God. Because his behavior arose from his belief. His belief in God. That God is the living God. And as demonstrated in the scriptures in our Old Testament, God is a, a God who comes to his people and a God who communicates with his people. That he is there, to use Schaefer's term. God is there, my friends, and he is not silent. He speaks. He has given us his word. And so we see Joseph, a man of faith. For you see, he believed in God's word. He believed in the virgin birth. He believed the unbelievable, as it were, of being told that Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit. Because listen, the virgin birth, or let me put it this way, a virgin birth was as rare then as it is today. You mothers and fathers, your teenage daughter comes home one night and she says to you, Mom and Dad, you better sit down, I've got news for you. And she says, I want you to know that I'm pregnant. But it's all right. God did it. How many of you would believe that? How many of you would say, glory to God, isn't that wonderful? But Joseph believed it. 
Such was the measure of his faith. And so by faith, Joseph moves from hurt to hope, from brokenness to blessedness, from emptiness to fullness. Because we read, he took Mary home as his wife and gave him the name Jesus, just as the angel of the Lord commanded. He called his name Jesus, meaning what? Well, we're told, aren't we? He shall save his people from their sins. That is, Jesus came to do a particular work. He came to save his people. That those who would believe on him for all time, from all language, from all peoples, from all nations. And he came to do a purposeful work. He came to save his people from their sins. He didn't come simply to rescue them from the Romans. He didn't come simply to set them free from their exile. He didn't come, as it were, to bring an end to injustice and cruelty. He came to deal with sin. The main problem confronting men and women. The sin problem. He came to pay the penalty for sin. And also delete its power, its pollution, and its presence. To save and to deliver and to rescue and to redeem and take them home to heaven above. Jesus came to do a personal work because the original wording is this, he and no other will save his people from their sin. The language of the reformers is by faith alone, in Christ alone. With the words of Jesus himself, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so these, these words define the name of Jesus. Jesus who came to do and did do a perfect work. For you notice, Jesus did not come in order that his people might be saved. Or possibly be saved. Or hopefully be saved. No, no. He came to seek and to save. Full stop. He shall. A particular, personal, purposeful perfect work. No doubt, no uncertainty. His perfect life and atoning death on the cross on behalf of sinful men assures that he will save his people from their sin. And so the hymn writer puts it like this, my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. Joseph, a God-fearing man. We see it in his devotion to God. We see it in his submission to God. And we see it finally in his commission. From God. For what was that? 
Have you ever stopped to think that Joseph was the man whom our Heavenly Father chose to be the formative influence in the life of his beloved and only son whom he had sent into the world. Joseph was to assume parental responsibility for Jesus' growth and development. He is the father the father chose to be the father, a stepfather, of his son. So what kind of a man did the father entrust his son to? Well, we've noticed his gentleness, his compassion, his obedience, his faith. But there's one further feature I haven't mentioned, and one that Joseph displayed so significantly, and that is his humility. His humility. He was a man prepared to accept without criticism or complaint what the Lord had assigned to him. The Savior is to be born, and his wife has the privilege of biological involvement with the incarnation. Joseph, however, realizes that he would always if I may say, only be the stepfather. Yet he embraced that status and willingly allows the Lord to turn his life upside down. He's the forgotten figure. His was no starring role. He, we might say, was but a necessary extra. And yet, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it once, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. What a beautiful, beneficial attribute humility is. Augustine said that the three great virtues of the Christian faith is this. Humility, humility, humility. And such was this man Joseph. And such tells us, does it not, what our Heavenly Father values in his people. And so we see Jesus, the God-man. And as we walk through the Gospels and we see Jesus' godly character and we see his tender heart and we see his gentleness and we see his compassion and we see his obedience and we see his humility, I wonder, I wonder what part of all that and more was due to Jesus' divine nature and what part was due 
to the influence of his stepfather, Joseph. We cannot answer. But it's worth pondering, is it not? Because, you see, we can look at ourselves. We hear this morning, parents, grandparents, young marrieds, church members. What impression are we giving to our children and to our young ones? What picture are we giving to them of our devotion to Jesus? What passion are we showing to them of our worship of God? What message are we giving out to our young ones, to our children, regarding how we understand Christmas? Are they challenged by our faith? Are they challenged by our commitment to Christ? Are they challenged by the fact that our values are not those which they're being seen and being uh, uh, demonstrated on, on, on the media? Are they challenged by our, our otherworldliness that they recognize this is not a home we're looking for another? And when they're beside us here in this room, when they sit together with you, are they impressed by your concern to have the scriptures and to read the scriptures? Are they impressed by your reverence in your worship to a holy God? Do they know something of passion in your heart to hear God's word preached, to hear there the very voice of Christ? Because through the preaching of God's word, Paul tells us, Christ's voice is heard. How sad that the church today divides up the family. That family worship in our homes is now rare. And family worship in the church is also rare. So what influence, spiritual influence, are we having on our young as a congregation? How are we impressing our young ones? Joseph, the forgotten figure, but a man used by God. And so I finish with this. If we, parents, grandparents, if we want our children, if we want our grandchildren, if we want our young people to become more like Jesus, then we had better be more like Joseph.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that wondrous work. We thank you for that life of Joseph which was lived out so quietly within the shadows. And yet what an impression he made. What a life he lived before you. No acclamation from the world, but surely a well-done, faithful servant from you, O God. Help us this Christmas, our Father, we pray of you. Then on our own quiet way, in our own little worlds, to walk as Joseph, that others may come to know the Son, Jesus. We ask it for your praise and glory. Amen.